Amen. Amen. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome many of you to the 1120 service. Thanks for being here today. Okay. Mark chapter 9, that's where we're hanging out today. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're working through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is a biography about Jesus Christ. It's written by a guy named Mark. Uh, Mark is a traveling companion with a guy named Peter. Peter lived and walked and talked and spent a lot of time with Jesus over the, about a three-year period. And so Mark records what Peter remembers about what Jesus did and said. And so as Mark um, writes down and Peter remembers uh, the life of Jesus, uh, Peter uh, often points to Jesus being the king, not just any king, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And, and he's a king that has power over darkness and death and disease. And uh, every, everything the enemy brings at Jesus, Jesus is able to handle it. He, he sees the storm. The storm is overwhelming the boat. Jesus calms the storm. Uh, there, there are dead people that are brought to Jesus. He brings them back to life. He feeds 5,000 with five loaves. Incredible. Over the first eight chapters of Mark, it's building, it's building, it's building. Peter's an eyewitness to all this. And finally... Um, in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Peter is spending time with Jesus. Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter makes the declaration that all of us affirm, even to this day, 2,000 years later, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we all affirm that today. That's why you guys are here is because you've seen it in your life. Time and time again, the enemy brings accusation. The enemy brings attack against you, and there the Lord is to see you through it. Time and time again, you read the scriptures, you apply it to your life, you know it's true. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we make that affirmation, many of us, we fall into this faulty belief. And the disciples fell this way too. Uh, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of God, the, the Lord of lords. You're the Son of God. You're the Savior of the world. And so that means because that's who you are and because you're in my life, that means all my problems are going to go away. That's exactly what the disciples thought. And that's what many of us fall into, isn't it? But Jesus says to them, the same thing that he says to us today, me being the Savior of the world means that I've got to go and to the cross and I've got to die. I've got to suffer. And if you want to be one of my followers, then you've got to daily pick up your cross and follow me. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Salvation is coming. The glory of God is coming. But first, there must be suffering. This is a gut punch for the disciples. And you remember last week, Jesus ministers to these, uh, his followers, and he, he brings them up on top of a holy mountain, and he pulls back the curtain. He allows them to see his glory. And Jesus is transfigured, and his, the Bible says that his face shines like the sun, and they're overwhelmed by it because now they're seeing not just Jesus the human, they're seeing Jesus the divine. And Jesus gives them a foretaste of, of what their future uh, awaits them in their future. He's given a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven, and he's saying one day we're going to be able to return to this holy mountain this place where Peter says, this is so good that we're here because that light is so inviting, it's so warm, it's so welcoming, it feels, everything is as it should be. And Peter says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let, let me build a tent. We're gonna stay here in this place. And Jesus says, no, I, I got more work for you to do. And so they walk back down the mountain and this begins, this journey down the mountain, it begins the last phase of Jesus's ministry on the earth. And during the last eight, nine chapters of Mark, what we're going to see is Jesus pouring into his disciples, and he is training them. And this is such an important lesson for all of us. I'm telling you, over the next uh, several months, because we're only halfway through the Gospel of Mark, we've been working on it through, since January, over the next several months, 
you are going to grow so much as we work through these passages because Jesus is speaking directly to us about how do we navigate this world when Christ isn't physically present. And so that's the season that we're moving into. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Let's all stand together. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has he been like? Has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, the father said, many times it's thrown him into a fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him. And he stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. My hope, my prayer, my goal for us today is that we can learn how to faithfully navigate this difficult world we're living in without the physical presence of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. I'm so grateful for my friends that have gathered here. I pray a blessing on each and every one and also those that are watching online. Lord, I pray that you will just come and meet with us, Lord, in a very real and tangible way. We've gathered here in your name, Lord, because we believe. We believe, Lord, and we hope that our faith grows because we need that faith to navigate this difficult world. Lord, your faith comes by the hearing of the word. And so that I, I pray, Lord, that the word is heard clearly today. And I pray that you will help me to preach the word well today. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer, something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. The disciples come down the mountain. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down the mountain. They see the other disciples. There's nine disciples. Jesus left them down in the valley by themselves, and uh, they see them. And there's a large crowd that's gathered with them. The scribes are disputing with them. Um, so the, the disciples in this, this valley situation, this event that's happening in the valley, they're kind of giving us a model of what it looks like to navigate this world without the physical presence of Jesus. And here's the reality. Life is hard without Jesus. I don't know how people that don't believe in Christ, I don't know how they navigate this world. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much hatefulness. There's so much uh, division. There's so much deception. Uh, there's so much injustice in this world. Without Christ, how do you navigate? 
You almost have to numb yourself with drug and drink. You almost have to do that. You almost have to distract yourself with all the things that the world, let me binge watch Netflix. Let me go to as many ball games as I can go to. Let me sleep with as many people as I can. Whatever I can do to get my mind off of the tragedy that is this world sometime. Uh, life without Jesus is hard. Even for those of us who believe, it's hard to navigate this world without the physical presence of Jesus. Wouldn't it be incredible as you're walking through this world, as you're walking through morning sickness, if Jesus was right there by your Wouldn't that be incredible? Amen. It would. It would be so much easier if Jesus were just here. And so the disciples, this is where we find them. They're in the valley. And they had spent the last two years, two and a half years with Jesus. He's right there in the flesh. Every challenge, he was there. But now they're on their own. And they're not doing too well. They've encountered a problem that they're powerless to fix. And their adversaries, the scribes, are rubbing their face in their inability. Verse 15, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and they ran to greet him. That word amazed could also be translated starstruck. Jesus had a lot of fans had a whole lot of fans. People love the idea of what Jesus can do for them. And so this whole crowd, they run to Jesus. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus looks past the crowd and he focuses his attention on the disciples. This is important. This is a transition. Jesus is looking past the crowd now and he's speaking directly to those who will follow him. Jesus, over the next several months, He's going to be speaking directly into your life. How do you navigate? How do you do faith when Christ isn't physically present? Verse 16, Jesus asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And what's interesting is the scribes don't answer that question. Because the scribes know, I can pick on the disciples. They're not very bright, but I can't bully Jesus, so I won't mess with him. The disciples don't answer him. Why? Because they're embarrassed. Here they are, Jesus had it previously empowered them to cast out demons. They were successful on their first journey. Remember, they departed two by two. They go out into Judea and Galilee. They're casting out demons. They did well that, but this time, with this boy's demon, they can't do anything, so they're embarrassed, so they don't say anything. Instead, verse 17, someone from the crowd answers him. Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. I, I want to make a note I'll come back to in a second. This resembles epilepsy. That's what it resembles. We'll come back to that thought, hold on to it. But here's the drama of this event. Jesus has left his disciples in the valley to, to navigate this world on their own without his physical presence. They're presented with a demon-possessed boy. They try over and over again to help this boy and they are unsuccessful in their attempts to cast out the demon. As hard as they try, they can't do it. The boy's father is frantically trying to get help for a son. He's making a scene. A crowd has assembled, and the unbelieving scribes are antagonizing the disciples. They are mocking them for their inability to cast out this demon, and they are casting doubt on the credibility of their self-professed Lord Jesus. The disciples have given up trying to help the boy, and now they've focused all their attention on arguing with the scribes. So this is what we see. Jesus has given the disciples this authority and this, uh, this opportunity to live out their faith, and they are failing miserably. Uh, totally off track. This is kind of like when you leave your 12-year-old at home for the first time alone, and they burn the house down trying to fix my, my macaroni and cheese in the microwave. 
So how does the loving and compassionate Jesus respond to the disciples' inability? I think a lot of people, they think of Jesus as like a stoner. You know, like, oh, you guys are so funny. You just crack me up, man. I love you no matter what. I'm just, I'm just, it's not a big deal, dude. I'll take care of it. Just easy going. Jesus just puts up with everything. Some people, they think of Jesus as like a soccer mom. And just, you know, how soccer moms, everything that their little kid does is like cute and lovable. It's like they can do no wrong, you know. It's like you did such a good job not fighting those demons, you know, failing. It's fine. Everybody gets a trophy. Is that what we see? Verse 19, look what Jesus, look how Jesus responds. You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Here's an important truth about Jesus Christ that many of us forget. Jesus does get frustrated with his followers. There is an expectation of growth and progress and development and accomplishment. Listen to me, friends. If you are just on cruise control in your faith, and here is the reality, many of you, if you were honest, you'd have to admit, that's where I'm at. You barely pray. You barely read the Bible. You never fast. Your worship is weak. You're not growing in your spiritual faith at all. If you're in cruise control in your faith journey, if you're on cruise control in your service, so many of you have been gifted with talents and time and treasure, and you could be advancing the kingdom of God, and instead, you are just on cruise control. If that's you today, that describes your faith journey, just kind of going through the motions, not advancing God's kingdom, not doing anything for the Lord, not growing in your faith, listen to me. Jesus is probably frustrated with you. Some people need to know, need to wake up to the reality, Jesus isn't going to put up with it forever. There are certain things that Jesus expects you to deal with. It's your responsibility. This demon was the disciples to cast out. There are sins in your life that Christ has called you to put to death. There is a calling on your life. There is a mission on your life that only you can fulfill. There is a mission field in your sphere that only you can walk into. The Lord has called each and every one of you, not just the preacher, not just the people that stand up on this stage, each and every one of you, he has called to be an evangelist. He has called you to be a disciple maker. He has called you to be a worship leader. He has called you to be a prayer warrior. He has called you to be a servant. We're all those things. Jesus says, you, not just me, not just Dave, not just Gerald, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are a minister of reconciliation. And this is what we do. So many Christians, they go to church every single day. They come to church. They sing some songs. They listen to a sermon. Then they go into their, into their life, and they, they don't serve Jesus in any other way. And this is what they do. They think, well, I'm just going to wait on Jesus to come back down the mountain and do all the things that he's called me to do. Unfortunately, because so many churches have preached a stoner Jesus or a soccer mom Jesus, Many who fill the church are simply fans of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. They're starstruck. And so they run to him because they love the idea of what he can do. We have a whole lot of consumers that go to church. We don't have a whole lot of disciples. We got a whole lot of people. They love to consume content. Give me a great worship song that gives me goosebumps. Give me a good sermon that gives me goosebumps. 
But the moment your faith starts to cost you something, the moment Jesus starts to put a calling and a conviction on your life, the moment that he starts talking to you about your sin or he starts talking to you about going and being an evangelist and being a witness, the moment it starts to cost you something, people, these people fall away. Jesus is long-suffering. There's a whole lot of patience. There's a whole lot of grace. There's a whole lot of mercy. He is very long-suffering but he's not eternal suffering. He isn't looking for perfection, but man, there needs to be some progress. There needs to be some progress. Look at verse 20. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And so a couple things here. Um, Number one, people ask me, they say, okay, so why don't we see demon possession today? Why don't we see demonic activity? So two things there. Number one, we do. We do, definitely. If If you've ever met with, had conversations with people that have been on the mission field, they will tell you stories of demonic activity, and it's clear as day. And so it's out there. In the Western world, it's a little bit different. And so the reason we don't see this kind of demonic activity uh, it's not as apparent, is because the game that Satan's playing in Western civilization is to further the idea uh, that secular humanists have that there isn't a spiritual realm, just to solidify that. And so the, the demonic, they're, they're, at, they're at work, but they're going to present themselves something as, as something that is uh, explained scientifically or, or something. So like I was telling you before, this appears, if this was happening in our day and age, uh, we, would, we would just simply diagnose this as epilepsy. Now, this isn't to say everybody that has epilepsy is demon-possessed, but here is to say, or that everybody that has mental health issues is demon-possessed. It is to say that there are times that the demons are going to present in this such a way. There are also times where, you know, a demon is going to present in a way of an ideology or in the way of a worldview. And so, you know, uh, one of the ways we see demonic activity in our world today is we see these uh, feminists that have a positive pregnancy test in one hand, and they're going to uh, protest for their reproductive rights. So they got a positive pregnancy test in one hand, and they're punching their womb with the other hand. It's demonic activity. We're, we'll see demonic activity with these slick preachers that are on TikTok who are preaching a prosperity gospel who are leading people astray. They're not getting the true Jesus. They're getting some made-up soccer mom, uh, you know, stoner Jesus. And, and they're, they're being, so we've got these preachers that are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. That's demonic. There's all sorts of ways that, that demonic, they present themselves as something that's easily explainable or something that's easy to digest because Satan doesn't want the Western world to know that there's a spiritual battle that we're fighting. Make no mistake, though. Demons are still active today, and their devices are just as deadly as ever before. Make no mistake. So this boy is possessed by a demon. He's possessed by a demon. We don't know what caused it. And that may be why the scribes and the disciples are arguing. You remember when the man was blind uh, and the, the, uh, Jesus healed him in John? I believe it was John chapter 9. It, this, this healing, it began with the question, well, who sinned this boy or his parents. And so Jesus said, neither one sinned. This happened for the glory of God. And so we don't know what caused this demon possession. 
But we do know this, regardless of the cause, the purpose and the outcome was the glory of God. Let me say that again. This is something you need to grab hold of. We don't know the cause. We do know the purpose and the outcome was the glory of God. What would change about your life if every overwhelming situation you ascribed that truth, that presupposition? I don't know what the cause is, but I know that the outcome and the purpose is going to be the glory of God. What would change about your life? If you started looking at every obstacle with that lens, I don't know the cause, but I know God's going to be brought glory. I know he's going to do something good through this. Verse 21, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Does Jesus know the answer to that question already? He does, right? Why is he asking this man? If he already knows, why is he asking this man this question? Two things Jesus is doing here. First of all, he is displaying compassion. He wants this man to know, I care about what's going on. Here's the other thing that Jesus is doing, and this is such a gift that he's given us. Jesus is teaching this man how to ask for help. He's encouraging this man, in essence, to name the demon. In the ancient world, there's a a, a presupposition, a superstition about demons that if you could learn their name, it gave you power over the demon. That's why we know, you remember the story about the, the demon named Legion. That's why we know his name. That was a practice in the ancient world. Let me figure out what the demon's name is. Now, I don't know if that was effective in casting out demons, but I do know this. It is is effective in dealing with the issues and the problems that we have in our lives. The first step in getting any sort of help is admitting there's a problem. The first step in casting out any personal demon in your life is naming that demon. And so if you never call it alcoholism, guess what? You'll never go to a 12-step program. You'll never get the help that you so desperately need. If you never call it porn addiction, then you'll continue to get on those websites. If you never own up to the unforgiveness in your heart, then guess what? Bitterness is going to continue to grow. If you never admit that there's a problem, you will never find the solution that Jesus wants to offer you. From childhood, verse 21 continued, from childhood, the father said, And many times it's thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. We have to name the demons that we're fighting in prayer. This this man, in essence, this father, in essence, is praying to Jesus. Jesus, my boy is hurting and I can't fix him. He's got this demon and I can't do anything with it. But if you can, if you would, please, Jesus, help. Jesus, my marriage is falling apart. There's all sorts of sins from the past. There's problems and pain in the present. And I don't know how to fix it all. But Jesus, if you can and if you would, please help. Jesus, my job is stressing me out. And I try so very hard, but it doesn't seem like anything I do is making any difference. Jesus, if you could and if you can, if you would, please help. Why is it so important that we name the demons that we're fighting? It isn't to alert Jesus. He already knows. It is to keep you from confusing where the blessing, where the healing, where the restoration, where the deliverance comes from. If you don't name the problem specifically in prayer, then this is what you'll do. You may assume you got the job because uh, you got a powerful resume and you're great at taking interviews. You may assume, well, I'm married way over my head because look how good looking I am. You may assume that 
the recovery from the disease was a result of the evermectin or whatever other medicine that you got, you may assume that you earned it, you deserved it, you made it happen. You may forget that every good and pleasing gift, it comes down not from your will, not from your intellect, not from your resources. It comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. You may forget that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You may miss an opportunity to give him glory and to grow in your faith if, if you don't name the demons that you're fighting. Jesus says to this broken father, and he says to you today, tell me about your problem. What does Jesus say? You have not, why? Because you ask not. Why, why does he want us to keep praying? Because he wants you to know that he's the deliverer, that he's the, the healer, that he's the provider. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. There's nothing too big for our Lord to handle. There's nothing too small that he doesn't care about. If it's enough to stress about, it's enough to pray about. And so you got to name the demon in prayer. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, he's offended. If you can, what do you mean if you can? He goes on to say everything. Now, you're, this is going to blow you away. Do you know what the Greek, the meaning of the Greek word here is, you know what it is? It's going to blow you away. Everything. <laughs> whatever it is that you're stressed about, whatever it is you're burdened by, whatever it is that you think there's not a solution, everything is possible for the one who believes. Man. Everything. Now, I, I got to pause here and say this because uh, prosperity gospel preachers, this is one of their favorite verses. They love it. Faith healing, name it, claim it, believe it, and receive it. And this is, this is the theology behind that. If you just have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy. If you just pray with enough faith, your dad will be made well, your marriage will be restored, you'll graduate with honors, and your, your dog will come back home. If you just have enough faith. And if you pray and it doesn't happen the way you want it to happen, what that means is you didn't pray with enough faith. How many of you have heard this gospel, this theology preached before? Let me tell you about this. This is a lie from the pit of hell. And it's been used for decades to manipulate uh, believing Christians like you. Now, let me give you evidence that this teaching, this name it and claim it, if I just have enough faith, then all my prayers will be answered. Let me, let me prove to you that it's a lie. Two things. Number one, here's evidence. That's a lie. Life right? Haven't we all prayed? We've prayed for the little boy that had cancer. And if anybody deserves to be healed of that cancer, it was a little boy. And what happened to the little boy, the little girl, she passed away. He passed away still. We've all prayed prayers, uh, the most honorable prayers that they weren't answered. And so life is evidence of that. Life is evidence. Here's the other. I'll give you biblical evidence. Jesus prayed in the garden the night that he was arrested. You remember this? Did Jesus believe? Did Jesus have faith? Did Jesus deserve for every single one of his prayers to be answered? 
Yeah? Nobody had more faith in the Father than Jesus. Nobody deserves for their prayers to be answered more than Jesus. Look what he prays. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What happened the next day? Jesus prayed this prayer. Lord, don't let me go through this. Father, don't let me go through this. All things are possible for you. Don't let me go through this. What happened the next day? Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, and he died on the cross. His prayer wasn't answered in the way that he desired. Is that a travesty? Is that an indictment against God the Father? No. It's the perfect and good will of God the Father. That's what it is. And this is what people say. I've had this argument with people. They say, well, that was before the resurrection. Uh, Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are healed. And so what that means is that God desires for everyone to be physically healthy and whole and all of their resources to be provided. And if they aren't, then it just means that they don't have enough faith. Okay. Paul writes after the resurrection. Did Paul, the apostle Paul, did he have faith? Did he believe? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. So Satan torments Paul with a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We have no idea. But it's something that really negatively affected Paul. Verse 8, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he would leave me, that it would leave me. Paul prays over and over and over again that God would take away this painful thorn in the flesh. Look at God's response, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. What What does God say to Paul in effect? He says no. Sometimes we pray believing with all of our heart and our prayers are noble. And sometimes even still, God says no. So what does Jesus mean when he says here, everything is possible for the one who believes? Jesus means if you have faith, everything is possible. Let me say it another way. For a true believer the possibilities of what God can do in you, through you, and for you are unlimited. Without faith, the Bible says, you can do nothing. With faith, the impossible is made possible. Now, it doesn't mean that it will be. What Jesus is saying here is it can be. Without faith, in your own strength, it's not gonna happen. There's no hope. With faith in Christ, there is always hope. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Got to have faith. Verse 24, immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. This is a verse I want to encourage each and every one of you to memorize and pray often. I do believe, help my unbelief. Truth is, you will never have perfect faith. Not on this side of heaven. Your faith is going to waver. You're going to have doubts. Sometimes you're going to have the strongest faith. Sometimes you're going to be able to pray bold prayers, believing with all your heart. You're going to have an unshakable faith. And then sometimes life is going to smack you around so much that your faith is just hanging on by a thread. 
And so I've got to pray, as a preacher of this church, I've got to pray this often. Father, I believe, but help my unbelief. Recently, I had some issues. We bought a house. I had some issues with my house. I thought it was going to be a bigger deal than what it was, what it turned out to be. But in the moment, you know, I was pretty overwhelmed, frazzled by it. Uh, we're doing some renovations in our basement, finishing our basement. And so the issues that we were having, it was affecting what my HVAC guy was going to do. So I called my HVAC guy up, and I was telling him, I need you to put your project on hold. And so he could tell I was frazzled by this situation. And he says to me, he says, have you talked to him about it yet? And I said, who? <laughs> Talk to who about it? Has your HVAC guy ever convicted you about prayer? <laughs> Sometimes we believe God is willing and able to answer everybody else's prayer but mine. Lord, I believe for everybody else. Help me to believe for me. Lord, I believe in every other situation. Help me to believe in this one. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. So this is, in effect, what Jesus does. The problem's over. It's dealt with. Now, wouldn't it be beautiful? Wouldn't it be beautiful if we could pray and then believe, once we pray and we set it at the feet of Jesus and we say, this is too much for me, but I don't think it's too much for you. Will, you. will you deal with this situation? Wouldn't it be incredible if we could just leave it there and live as if Jesus had dealt with it or is dealing with it? Wouldn't that be incredible? Man, this is what I do. I pray and I'm like, Lord, I need you to handle this. I'm, a, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm not going to stress about it. I've done all I can do. I've done the best I can. I'm going to trust you with the rest of it. And then I leave it at the feet of Jesus. And then I take about three steps over here. And I'm like, ah, I probably want that back. <laughs> Jesus says here, come out of him and never enter him again. He has dealt with the problem. It's done. It's over. It's dealt with. But look at this, verse 26. Then it came out shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse so that many said he's dead. Jesus healed the boy and it got worse. The boy's dead like a corpse. Here's an important reminder in your faith journey and in God's redemptive plan. Oftentimes things get worse before they get better. Healing hurts, doesn't it? Progress is painful. And so the next time you're in a valley facing a problem that you can't fix, you're surrounded by your adversaries, you're feeling weak and far from God, you're about ready to give up and give in to despair, the next time I want you to keep the faith. I want you to be reminded things get worse sometimes before they get better. I want you to keep praying, and I want you to hold on to these two words. Verse 27, but Jesus. But Jesus. The Israelites had escaped from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It was a terrible existence. They were crying out to God every single day. Finally, God, through Moses, answers their prayers. He, he delivers them out of Egypt, and now they're at the Red Sea. On the other side of the Red Sea is their journey into the Promised Land. But here's the problem. They're trapped. 
The Red Sea's in front of them. Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit behind them. And so they jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. Things got a whole lot worse. But God made a way where there was no way. They end up in the desert, and they don't have any food. They don't have anything to drink. And this is what they said. It would have been better for us to just die in Egypt. Isn't that what they said? But God sent bread from heaven and water from a rock. They got to the edge of the promised land, this place flowing with milk and honey. And then they sent in spies. You remember what the spies said when they came back? They said, these these people that live here are giants. They are bigger than anything we would have ever faced in Egypt. We should just go back there. But God defeated their enemies and gave them the promised land. Things often get worse before they get better. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't stop believing. Don't stop praying. Don't stop fighting. They nailed our Lord Jesus to a tree. They jammed a spear in his side. He bled out. He stopped breathing. They put him in a grave. They covered it with a a rock. They sealed the tomb. It looked like it was over. All hope seemed lost, but Jesus rose up out of the grave. The boy looked like he was dead. He was rigid as a corpse. But Jesus grabbed him by the arm and raised him up, and he arose. He arose. Verse 28. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 29. And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Here's the the mistake the disciples made in the valley. Here's the mistake many of us make. They were trying to cast out the demon under their own strength, not in faith. You ever do that? Confronted by an overwhelming problem, and this is what, especially us men, we get out a pen and a paper. We start brainstorming. We call the accountant, how much money I got in the bank. Call the experts. Let me get my HVAC guy on. He seems to know what he's talking about. We toss and turn all night. We read books. We try and figure it out under our own strength. Don't we do that? Confronted by a feeling of helplessness. And what do we do? We do what the world does. We go to a better brewer and we try and just drink our problems away. Maybe we find a bottle that we stored in the back of our medicine cabinet that we got for getting our wisdom teeth pulled out. We're like, oh, this might help me feel better for the next couple hours. Or we go and binge watch something on Netflix or on something on HBO. I'll just distract myself from all of my problems. Isn't that what we do? If you try and navigate this life under your own strength, you will never overcome the darkness. Matthew chapter 17, parallel passage of what we've read today. Matthew adds a couple details that are important. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. How much faith is required to accomplish the impossible? How much faith is required to overcome the overwhelming challenge that you are currently facing? How much faith is required? Jesus says, faith the size of a mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith goes a long, long way. You don't need a perfect faith. You don't need a faith that never doubts or never wavers. You don't need a Moses-level faith 
All it takes is faith like this father had. Did this father have great faith? Did he have perfect faith? Not really. He didn't know anything about Jesus. All he knew was Jesus was a healer. That's all he knew. He didn't know any Bible verses. He hadn't had any conversation with Jesus. He says to Jesus, if you can, I'm not sure if you can. I'd like it. I hope you can, but I'm not sure. I'm not that confident. He says, I've got faith. The father says, I've got faith, but you know, not a whole lot of faith. I've got faith, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't believe. Is this great faith? No, not at all. But this man had enough faith to come to Jesus. He had enough faith to be honest about the problem. He had enough faith to ask Jesus for help. He had enough faith to take a step back and allow Jesus to work in his life. Don't you have that much faith? Don't you have enough faith to whatever your problem is to come to Jesus and say, I can't, I can't fix this, but I hope that you can. I think, I'm not sure, I'm not even sure. I believe, but help my unbelief. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this to you and then I'm gonna take a step back and I'm gonna wait on the Lord to do what I can't do. Don't you have that much faith? And this is what I think of all of you in this room. Yes, you do. And because you do, listen to me, nothing will be impossible for you. There are challenges in your life that you're facing. There is sin that you are trying to crucify. There's a job that you're trying to accomplish. There's a person you're trying to reach. This world is going crazy, and you want to make a positive influence, and the problem looks so big, and you think, I don't know how I can do it. Just a little bit of faith will make the impossible possible. We are the disciples. We're navigating the world without the physical presence of Jesus. You will find yourself in a valley confronted with a problem that is beyond you, surrounded by people who are making it worse, not better. You're going to feel helpless and you're going to feel hopeless. And when you do, when you end up in that difficult position, do not quit. Do not blame or curse God. Do not put your head down and just try and power through. Instead, get on your knees. Name your problem. Ask Jesus for help. Give him time to work and live as if his promises are true. Have faith. If you have faith, the Holy Spirit will protect you. He will provide for you. He will empower you to overcome the darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Faith comes by hearing the word. I pray that our faith is growing. Even now, as we sit in these chairs, Lord, help us to have faith for the things in our life that are beyond our control. Help us to have faith for all the things that we're anxious about. Help us to have faith even in the small things, Lord. Help us to trust you with every area of our life. Lord, help us to have faith in these situations that seem impossible. Help us to have faith in these situations that are beyond our control. Lord, help us to have faith for our children who are struggling, who may be far from you, who may be wondering for you. Lord, help us to have faith for our marriages that may be falling apart. Help us to have faith in our finances, Lord, and we're scared that we're not gonna be able to put food on the table. Help us to have faith for our health, Lord, and we're not be able to get the answers from the doctors that we're hoping. Help us to have faith, Lord, in the news from this world that is so overwhelming and seems beyond anything that anybody can fix. Help us to have faith in you. So that, Lord, we can walk confidently, we can walk boldly, so that we can have peace 
and joy and hope no matter the circumstances, knowing that you have already overcome the darkness the moment that you came up out of that tomb. It's already done. The victory is ours. Help us to live as if that's true. To be a light in this dark world, it means to have faith in the God who is able. Help us to have that kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. This is a a time of invitation, a time of prayer, a time of thanksgiving. If you're here today and you're overwhelmed, you can come and lay your burdens down at the altar. Put them at the feet of Jesus and leave them there. And say, I can't, but I believe you can. Your faith will grow. Your confidence will grow. Your strength will grow if you do that. This is also an opportunity to be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have the emblems on either side of the stage. If you're here today and you need somebody to pray with you, Dave's in the back. I'm here. I'd love to pray with you. If you're here today and you're far from Christ, please come and talk to me. Let me tell you about your next steps. As we sing this song, come.